0: It's good to see so many of you guys here this morning. Uh, For those of you guys that have been praying for myself and for my family, uh, thank you. I'll just give you a quick update on Josiah. Uh, He is at Shan's uh, Hospital uh, and should be released sometime later today with a uh, change to his medication. And hopefully we'll be able to experience a nice long season again um, without him having another seizure. So thank you guys who... um, were praying yesterday once he had his accident and his seizure and then uh, subsequently had to go to the hospital. We really, really appreciate that. We love you guys, all you guys who reached out to us. Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Um, Go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, That is going to be our text uh, this morning. Um, if you need a Bible or if you do not have one of the scripture journals yet, this is your first time at Aletheia or you haven't grabbed one yet. If you'll raise your hand, we'll have somebody bring a scripture journal to you. That is our free gift to you. We also have Bibles. If you need one, we would love to give those to you as a gift as well. And, and one of the reasons why we do that is uh, just to be perfectly upfront. We love the word of God here. We believe Um that God has spoken to us and is speaking to us when we open his word and we study it and when we study it together that we hear from him. And so you will notice that if you spend any uh, length or period of time with us at Alathea Church, we, we tend to study entire books of the Bible together as a church family. We wanna know these books well. We wanna know them inside and out. and We wanna know what God would have for us because we believe that is how God reveals himself to us today. And so last week, Pastor Daniel shared with us uh, from those last three verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And one of the things he spent some time focusing on in that sermon was this idea that the church is to be the pillar and buttress of truth. He says this, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And, and so Pastor Daniel unpacked this idea for us of, of what is Paul saying here, right? Paul is saying, Timothy, I want to come to you. I want to come to Ephesus. I long to be with this church that I planted and those people that I love and those leaders and pastors that I poured into and trained and discipled. And I long to see the new Christians that are there in Ephesus. And I long to see what God is doing in your lives. But since I can't come to you right now, I'm writing to you this letter so that you, Timothy, this young man who I have personally discipled and spent time with, right, that you might lead this church without me being there so that the church would be the pillar and buttress of truth in Ephesus, right? And, and we unpack this idea that, that that idea of the church being a pillar or a buttress of truth meant that both of those things are support structures, that's what they're there for, that they're supposed to be supporting something, the way that the pillar and buttress might support the walls of, of a castle or a fortress. And so we are called then, according to what Paul is saying here to Timothy, is that if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a member of his church. And by extension, in being a member of his church, you are called to be part of that pillar and buttress, that support system to the gospel that the church's entire goal and reason for existence is to take the good news, the gospel message of what Jesus Christ has done to rescue and save sinners like me, like you, like your family, like your neighbor, like your coworker, that you are to take that message and support it and to defend it To the end. So uh, so we are called as the church, right? Jesus' desire for his church is that we as the church would be the support structure to the message of the gospel. And that from that, out of the church would flow sound doctrine, a sincere love for God, a sincere love for others, a love for biblical ethics, a love for biblical justice, centered around seeing human beings flourish. Not because we want human beings to flourish according to what the Declaration of Independence would say or what the Constitution of the United States would say, but we want human beings to flourish because they're made in the image and likeness of their creator and that we gather and we read God's word together so that we might make much of Jesus together and in that see God's kingdom realized until Jesus' return. That we would see the culmination of the kingdom coming. And this can be difficult to approach, right? Pastor Daniel unpacked this for us. It can be difficult to approach things like injustice in the world. There's so many different things going on at any, any given moment, right? Just turn on cable news. You'll find out very quickly how terrible everything is. But the calling of God is that we must approach injustice because the world will often tackle it outside of God's design and framework. And if injustice and poverty and so many of the things we see plaguing human society are tackled outside of God's design and framework, there will never be any actual change. There will never be any actual hope. And this will eventually lead to repetitive cycles of things that are created to try to help human beings without any long-lasting flourishing or change. And guys, here's how I know this to be true. And I'm only 34, right? And so what, what do I know? But from my study of human history, here's what I've seen. You ever notice that every four years or so, politicians promise to create systems and solutions to problems? And then a certain party or a certain person gets elected, and guess what happens four years later? Someone else comes along and claims they need to be elected so that they can fix the systems and solutions that the person we elected four years ago created for us. Because this is what we do as human beings. right? We attempt to... Right? and I think rightfully so, tackle the issues that we see plaguing society. But when we do it devoid of biblical truth and we do it devoid of God and the gospel, we never are able to actually fix those systems and structures. And so Paul's point is the church is called to be the support and strength to the word of God and to point people to things like biblical justice, biblical ethics, and the gospel, and allowing the world to see and experience the beauty of God's design and desire. And then we invite them to respond to, as Paul puts there, the mystery of godliness. And this is where we desire to see the church be an agent of change, right? Where we desire to see widows and orphans and the poor taken care of. We desire to see people, no matter what race, culture, or ethnic identity they have, become a member of the family of God and united under the banner of Christ. Where we desire to see God made much of and human sin dealt with. Where we desire to see sin punished, right? But ultimately punished in Christ. And people brought to true repentance and change. And so as we arrive now at chapter four, right, Paul's point to to Timothy is this. Timothy, if you want to lead a church with gospel fidelity, with gospel faithfulness, with faithfulness to what God desires of his church, a church that understands the importance of doctrine and loving others well, And then takes that doctrine and applies it rightly to areas of ethics, to areas of justice, to commerce, and to anything else that we might walk in in our daily lives. You must be ready to do two things. You must be ready to know what God's word says and stand by it, even when it's inconvenient. And you must know that there will be some among you who will depart and stray from that faithfulness to God's word and be ready for it. And that's what we're gonna focus in on today is knowing how to approach people that might even be amongst us in our church, but eventually stray away from what God's word says to be true about them, says to be true about the church, says to be true about the word, and the world around us and how to navigate the reality of them leaving and lead through that. Because this is exactly what Timothy was dealing with. He was dealing with people inside the church who had been personally discipled by Paul, had been personally uh, led to the Lord and taught how the mystery of godliness plays out in the scriptures. And then they were straying from what they had been taught. And this is Paul coming to Timothy and saying, okay, Timothy, here's how I want you to lead through this. Here's how I want you to respond to this. Here's how the church is supposed to look in the midst of this. And so two big points is all I have today, things that we'll see in these five verses. False teachers should not take us by surprise. that's the first point that Paul is going to make to Timothy. And his second point, right doctrine or sound doctrine lead to right living, that right doctrine, knowing what is true about ourselves and knowing what is true about God and knowing what is true about us in light of what God says is true about us will always lead to right living, not perfect living. Notice I could have said, hey, right living leads to perfect living. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that consistently over time, disciples of Jesus display characters that, that, are congruent with godliness that move in the direction of holiness and being more like their creator. So let's unpack this first point that we see in these first two verses of chapter four, that false teachers should not take us by surprise. And before we look at those two verses, I want to ask you this question. What do you think of when you hear the word false teacher? What's the first thing that pops in your mind. If you're, taking, if you're taking notes, write it down in your in your scripture journal or in your notes, but just write down the first thing that pops in your mind, whether it's a person or an attitude or whatever, just write it down. And I want you to circle it and come back around to that later. Because Paul makes it clear here in verse one that false teachers not only exist, but are to be expected and that every Christian, the church, right? Every believer in the church is needs to be and is expected to be on guard for false teaching. Let me read these first two verses for you again. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. All right, so notice the first thing that Timothy is told there by Paul, right? He says, Timothy, God is not surprised by the fact that there are false teachers rising up in his church. As a matter of fact, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons and its insincerity of liars. Right, so two things. Right? First and foremost, right, it says the Spirit expressly says, meaning Paul's point to Timothy is, Timothy, you shouldn't be surprised by any of this. God had told us that this would happen. Right? And I know because all of us tend to come from different backgrounds, or some of us didn't even have a church background at some point in time, we all have different thoughts on what that word latter days is going to mean. Right? Here's what I'll tell you from the context of reading this. Paul Paul means any time after Jesus's resurrection. That's what he's talking about. He's like, hey, in these later days, and we're in the later days now, Jesus has raised from the dead, right? Now I can promise you this, there are gonna be some later days after today. (laughs) But, But according to what Paul is saying right here, he's like, hey, Timothy, the time we're living in can be defined as the later days because it's after Jesus's resurrection. And because of this, right, one of the things we should expect is that there are gonna be teachers who rise up inside of the church and do not hold a sound doctrine, but instead devote themselves to deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons, and the insincerity of liars. Now, I don't know about you guys. That's not a very flattering list, right? You love, when you just love to say about you, like when they're describing you or introducing you to somebody at a party, oh, yeah, this is my friend Kevin. He devotes himself uh, to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, and he's an insincere liar. Right, nice to meet. Like all of us, if we introduce people that way, we'd be like, yeah, not interested in meeting your friend, right? Like not interested, right? So if these things were obvious, right, we would all easily kind of point these things out. And this is why Paul's pointing this out to Timothy. He's like, look, this is what these people are doing, but it's not, all, it's not just as obvious as me saying, hey, these people are liars and they're devoting themselves to demons. Paul's point to Timothy though is don't be shocked by this. Don't be taken by surprise. God warned us that some would depart. And it will be a reality all of us will face for as long as we are alive on this earth and a professing follower of Jesus. Tim Challies, who's a Christian blogger and whose ministry has been really invaluable to me over the years as, I, as I've walked with the Lord. Wrote an article, gosh, probably about three or four years ago at this point. Um, and I had to go back and dig it back up this past week as I was reading through this, right? But in the article, he points out who the seven false teachers are today in the church, what they look like. And he gives them all titles. Let me let me share those with you real quick, right? The the first one is the heretic, right? And he, he says that this is the most prominent and dangerous of the false teachers, that they blatantly teach and contradict essential teachings of the Christian faith. So this would, this would be someone that would say like, yes, Jesus didn't exist, or Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, right? Just like blatant, right, teachings that go directly against the understanding that the church has had of who God is and who Jesus is over the course of the last 2,000 years, right? The next one is, is what he's labeled as the charlatan, this is a person who uses Christianity as a means to personal enrichment, right? Now, I'm not going to name names, but if you're up sometime between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. at night, and depending on what channel you're watching, you'll probably see some of these people, right? These are people that like, if if you send them money, they'll send you the prayer cloth that will heal you, right? That they are using the gospel and and, and the hope found from Jesus Christ to not help other people, to not serve other people, to not lead people to godliness and a sincere love for God, but instead to take money from them and take advantage of them. The third one is the false prophet. This is someone who claims to be gifted by God to speak fresh revelation outside of scripture, right? This type of person will come to you and say, God has told me this, right? Probably one of the most famous false prophets is a guy by the name of Joseph Smith, Right, who claimed that God came to him and spoke to him through these angels and gave him these golden tablets. And an entire movement of religion exists in the United States and worldwide now because of that false prophet, right the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right, He claimed to receive a fresh or special revelation outside of scripture, something new that God had shared with him. The fourth one is the abuser. This is a leader who uses his or her position to take advantage of other people. And this is very, very common today, guys. Unfortunately, I would argue that this is probably one of the most common ones we see today, right? Is leaders inside of the church using that position to take advantage of others, either financially, sexually, emotionally, that it can happen across multiple areas. And it's something that we must be aware of. Number five, the divider. This is someone who uses false doctrine or doctrine to disrupt or destroy unity inside of the church. This person sometimes will create a fight or a disagreement over a minor doctrine or theological issue and then causes factions and divisions to arise against the leadership of a church body or a denomination. And this person, their goal, they receive satisfaction from destruction, which I... Interestingly enough, if we looked closely at these people, we would realize that the same uh, adjectives are used to describe Satan. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what the divider attempts to do, is to instead of promoting unity inside of Jesus' church, they seek to destroy that unity and have people fighting amongst themselves. The sixth one is called the tickler. This is a person who cares about the attention and praise of people over faithfulness to God and his word. This is someone that often has large audiences, is super popular, maybe even a celebrity, but they don't hold strongly to God's word. They don't hold strongly to doctrine. doctrine. They're simply interested in gaining the praise and attention and notoriety that comes from the crowds. And the last one is called the speculator. This is a person who's obsessed with the novelty or new ideas inside of scripture, originality, or speculation. This is the type of person who would obsess over end times. You guys have heard me make fun of that person from the pulpit multiple times, right? Where, where they seek to find some sort of hidden code inside of the scripture where where if they read the Bible a certain way, God has hidden a code on when the end times will be or or whatever else. I mean, I remember back in the 90s, this famous book came out called the Bible Code, right? And the person's premise was if you took the original Hebrew and circled it in certain ways, there were hidden messages written in there. And it was obviously crazy. But that is the type of thing that the speculator does. And I share this list for a number of reasons. Number one, it is helpful to put a title and a definition to the various types of false teachers that will exist in the church around us. Something to pay attention to. Paul's call for Timothy to be ready for the departers is a call for any who are committed disciples of Jesus that we should be on guard for these types of people inside of our church families, that if we see someone straying and moving away and moving towards these particular doctrines or doing these types of things, we should be faithful to call them out and go to leadership and talk about it. And if we see it inside of our leaders, we need to go to our leaders and call them to repentance, to call them to come back in, into line with God's word the way that uh, Paul has shared with Timothy multiple times throughout this letter so far. But one of the things I want us to pause and think about for a moment is when we think of these people, right, when, when we look at that list of seven examples of false teachers in the church today, right, I, I'm going to guess that most of you, if you spent any time in the church, thought of someone in particular when we read some of those things, right, someone you've seen on TV, maybe unfortunately you were part of a church that, that experienced something like this, but you thought of someone in particular, right, and it's easy Right, to think about those extreme examples. But how do those people become false teachers in the first place? How do they, how do they get to that point? Because I would imagine there, there are a number of you guys here who are relatively young and relatively new believers. Right? You, so someone has been praying for you and sharing the gospel with you, and, and you're just starting your journey with Jesus. Right, you're new to walking with the Lord. And if I walked up to you today and said, hey, like, so like what are some of your long-term goals and aspirations and dreams as a follower of Jesus? Right, you might say like, I wanna be a missionary or I wanna be a faithful mom or a faithful dad or I just wanna love God and know him better. Right? I doubt any of you would look at me and say, I wanna be a false teacher one day. Like, that, like that's what I wanna do. Right? Like I, I, I wanna be one of those seven people that you listed there, right? No, no, no one's going to say that. No one ever walks into the church with, with the desire, right, to say, I want to be labeled a false teacher and be outside the bounds of scriptures and, and go against God's word and his, his love for us. Right? But if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right, I think that, that Paul says something really interesting here at the end, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says something super interesting here starting in verse 5. He's giving out all of these warnings to the church and how they they can uh, better lead in Corinth. And look at what he says starting in verse five. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? One of the things I was thinking of as I was processing through that list and, and, and preparing for the sermon this week is no one ever grows up desiring to be a false teacher that leads thousands and maybe even millions of people astray in their life. Right? But if we take the parable of the sower that Jesus shares in the Gospel of Matthew seriously, right, here's what Jesus says is true about the good news of the Gospel right, that it can be compared to a, a sower who sows seed, right? And that sower, right, he walks out, and he'll throw some seed, and here's what'll happen, right? Some of it'll fall on rocky soil, and when it falls on that rocky soil, it doesn't take root, and it's immediately, the seed is immediately uh, damaged by the sun, and it never grows. So some people that, that we know will share the gospel with them, and they, they won't make any sort of response to it. They'll be uh, apathetic towards it. They'll be agnostic towards it. Or they might be even antagonistic towards it and hate what you're sharing with them, right? Others, he says, will fall on on slightly less rocky soil. And as as the seed gets thrown, it takes root, but immediately the enemy comes up and gobbles it right? And so what happens here in, in these instances is someone might even profess to be a follower or a believer in Jesus Christ and to be a disciple, but that the moment some sort of spiritual warfare or difficulty takes root, right, they're pulled away and they walk away from the faith. And I think those two types of people are pretty, pretty obvious to spot. But the third one that Jesus shares, I think is really, really difficult, because the reality is, is some of you here this morning might even fall into that category. right? The third category is that it, it, the seed falls on some good soil, and it grows up, and it sprouts up, and it looks vibrant, but over time, it gets t- overtaken by weeds and thistles. And Jesus says that what, what that can be likened to is someone who... Professes faith and believes in Christ, but then the cares of this world take hold of them and they become choked up and they start loving those things more than their love for God. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the scriptures that God does not play second fiddle to anyone, that he is on the throne. Right, if we think about our hearts and what they might be inclined towards, right? Scripture tells us that either they're inclined towards the God who created us and that we worship him and him alone or we don't worship him at all. Jesus says that those that are lukewarm he spits out. And it is my belief that what happens if this third person, right? The, this person who gets choked up by the cares of this world, what happens to them? What happens if that person stays in the church and truly believes that they're a follower of Jesus, but the gospel hasn't really taken hold? What happens if that person spends five, 10, 15, 20, 30 years inside of the church, they continue through life believing, but they actually in their heart deny Christ? How easy would it be for that person to then fall into one of these seven categories and not realize it? As they are choked, what if they begin to stray from sound doctrine? And so, my point here is this it's easy for us to read something like we read here in, in, in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy and put what we're reading on someone else. Oh, yeah, I see that particular televangelist. he He's definitely the charlatan. He's a false teacher. We need to keep people away from him. Yeah, I see that guy who has this vibrant church ministry, but he denies the inerrancy of Scripture. Or yeah, I, I know that person who's clearly a predator and an abuser. We're not going to follow him. But it's a lot harder to notice the person that's developing into that, who's heading into that direction. And yet, Paul's point to Timothy here is we must all take this seriously. That we should be on guard both for our own faith, testing it to see if we are bearing fruit that is in keeping with repentance, so that we don't fall into that category of those that depart, but to also be on guard with one another as the church, to make sure and to test the teaching and leadership of others, being careful to make sure that that teaching and that leadership is in line with the word of God. And if they are not in line with the word of God, allow them to depart. And let me just take a second to unpack that for a second, right? Because that seems really um, rude and unloving, right? To say, oh, if someone is uh, straying from sound doctrine, we need to allow them to depart. We need to allow them to, to depart from the doctrine and we need to allow them to depart from the church. Here would just be my encouragement. If, if we see somebody falling into this pattern, into this trap, we appeal to them from scripture, but ultimately it is not the job of any of us here this morning to change someone's heart. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. And if someone refuses upon looking at the Word of God to respond to that word, right we need to allow God to do the work of transforming them, not try to force it on our own. And so as Paul says to Timothy here as they depart, let it happen. Some guys I, we are, we live in a, a a season of life where I think a, as a culture, we are probably, uh, moving out of what I would consider to be postmodernism towards ethical standards to maybe some of the most religious standards we've ever had. I remember like 10, 15 years ago, like the, the prevailing theme was like, hey, there is no such thing as moral standards. I don't think anyone believes that anymore. Right? Everyone has moral standards. They just might not be based on something in particular, but everyone has them at this point. And we're seeing, right, when those, when those standards are devoid of biblical truth, they have no leg to stand on. They have no foundation. And what ends up happening, though, is if we don't let people, right, be shown for who they really are inside the church, right, then we allow confusion to creep in because people are like, well, You know that person's still around. They're still teaching inside the church. Maybe they really are in line with Scripture. Now, what we need to do is hold to biblical fidelity and allow those people to go. The most loving thing you can do for somebody sometimes is to let them go on their way. Right? I think I think about this even as a parent sometimes. Right? With my children right? It is my job to shepherd them and lead them and to direct them to make wise decisions, right? Basically my job as a father is to teach them about the goodness of God found in Jesus Christ and their need for Jesus and to prepare them to be a functioning adult. That's it. Those are, those are my, that's my job description, right? Point my kids to Jesus and raise them to be a functioning adult. If I've done those two things, I've been successful, It has nothing to do with where they get into the right college or have a certain career. No, my job is to point them to Jesus and raise them to be a functioning adult. Sometimes as a father, though, right? And you guys can either have experienced this already as parents or will possibly experience this one day as a parent. No matter how much wisdom you bring to your children, they will reject it. It's like, hey, like, you know, Gideon, I think, you know, jumping off the roof onto the trampoline is probably not a good idea, right? And in that moment, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to say, this is a bad idea. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to physically restrain you and stop you from doing it. But sometimes there's another lesson to be learned, right? The stove is on, right? And my kid wants to play with the stove. And I've told him multiple times, take a step back. Don't do that. You're going to get burnt. Stop. Sometimes the most loving thing I can do is let my kid touch the stove and burn his hand. Some of you are like, how could you do that? If my kid does that, guess what they're never going to do again? Touch the stove. Because God will give us over to ourselves and as he does that, the reality of the false foundation that that will create will be laid bare before us. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here is allow them to experience that. Allow God to give them over to themselves. Now, quick note, right? This does not mean that we demand perfection from leaders and teachers and everyone around us. That's not what Paul is saying to Timothy here at all, right? what what we should be looking for is sound biblical doctrine in our leaders and in our teachers, and we should look for a pattern of holiness and repentance, right? As we see in 1 Timothy chapter three or Titus chapter one. The biggest thing I see inside of false teachers is that when they're wrong and they are in open sin and rebellion, there's no humility and repentance from them. And let me just say this, guys. One of the scariest things in the world to me as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus Christ is if someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus, who when they are confronted with the reality of their own sin has become so desensitized and unaffected by it that instead of responding with sorrowful repentance, they double down and defend themselves. The sin itself, guys, almost never breaks my heart. Every once in a while it, went, it will, it'll hurt me. But when I see professing Christians in open sin and rebellion, being lovingly called to respond to their sin, to confess it, to repent of that sin and turn instead to Christ, and I see them either blame shift or make excuses or flat out deny that they are in sin, that is when I'm heartbroken. Because Paul shares something in Romans chapter one that 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 tells us something about that person, right? He says this starting in Romans chapter one. And if, you, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Romans, right, Paul in that first chapter is basically just saying, hey, everyone is jacked up and loves everything but God. Human beings love to worship the creation rather than the creator. And then look at what he says starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever, amen. Paul's saying the universal problem with human beings is that they've worshiped what God has created instead of the creator who created those things. This would be like if mom made you a birthday cake and then dad brought it to you and you gave dad all the attention and glory for, for bringing that birthday cake to you. And mom's kind of like, I did all the work. What, what's wrong? And, and dad's like willingly taking it. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> right, this is what Paul is saying is wrong with human beings. And then he says this, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Right Here is what Paul is trying to communicate to us there in Romans chapter one. When people reject the authority of God in their life, Ultimately, what God ends up doing is He gives them over to themselves. Meaning, there is some level of restraint that the Holy Spirit is using on human beings everywhere, every day, to prevent them from doing the most heinous things you can possibly imagine. But eventually, God gives men and women up to their appetites and evil desires. And when we see that, and we see that full on rebellion, we should take people at what they are showing us. We should believe what they are showing us about themselves. And one of the most heartbreaking things to me, to me is when I see leaders and professing Christians who are in open sin and open rebellion to God, not because they are sinning, but because they are unrepentant and not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection as being sufficient for them. And they're relying on themselves. Guys, if you are a a Christian here this morning, hear me when I say this. I I wanna give you some encouragement for a moment. If you see sin in your life, you notice it, you see it, you're broken up about it, you hate it, you hate that you gossip. You, you hate that you've caused strife and disunity amongst someone else. You hate whatever sin you might be wrestling with. Be encouraged. Don't be sorrowful. Be encouraged. Rejoice because that is evidence that God is at work in your life. Right? What Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 1 The people that are given over to their passions are the ones that have have rejected God and God has given them up. And the most beautiful thing that can happen is that when you are in sin and rebellion, the Holy Spirit breaks you over that sin. And that is not something to take lightly, but it is also something to rejoice in because it is evidence of God's grace towards you that he is not done with you that he will change you, that he will transform you and mold you into the image of Christ and that that conviction of sin and that call to repentance is not evidence of a lack of love for God, but evidence of a sincere love for God and you being God's son or daughter. And as Paul promises us, he who has begun a good Work in you will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. Conviction of sin is an evidence of God's grace, not an absence of it. Rejoice in that. And so we see in these first two verses, right, Paul's warning to us as a church. If we wanna be a faithful church that loves God and loves others, one of the things we must do is be on guard for false teachers and let them depart. Now next, right, he's gonna share with Timothy why if you don't consistently keep a lookout for false teaching, and hold to sound doctrine that tolerating false teaching is problematic. He's gonna share with us why false teaching is so problematic, right? And, And this is my second point, that right doctrine leads to right living, right? Look at verses three through five with me. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected, for it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so what is, what is Paul saying here? What is, what is Paul trying to get Timothy to see? He's saying, Timothy, improper doctrine, wrong, wrong understanding of what God teaches to be true, right? And we, we, we said last week that God is the standard of truth and that we're just the pillar and buttress of that truth, right? So improper doctrine will almost always lead to improper application of God's word in our lives and living as a disciple. It almost always inevitably leads to improper living. And he shares a specific example going on inside of this church that Timothy is pastoring, right? The issue going on at the church in Ephesus was something called asceticism, which no one one probably uses that term in 2020, right? But asceticism is basically a form of self-punishment. And I will tell you this, this still occurs in the church today in 2020. It just manifests itself differently, right? Here's what asceticism teaches, right? It forbids marriage. It, It tells us that we must abstain from certain foods. And the thought behind asceticism is because we as human beings are sinners, because we stray from God's design and God's truth we must punish ourselves and avoid those things at all costs so so here's how this like commonly plays itself out right if if you have a uh, particular sin or addiction right you create some list of rules or things for yourself to follow to punish yourself for consistently following in that falling in that sin you know, so it's like, if, if your sin is, is cursing, right? Oh, I put, I put a dollar in the jar every time I curse. Right? My grandfather used to do that. He had a lot of money in that jar over the years. Right, but his thought was, if he punished himself enough, he would stop. Like, right? guys, that's behavior modification. That's not the gospel. Ever notice how if you create a New Year's resolution, 90% of you will be done with it by month three? That's just the statistics. One of my favorite podcasts I was talking to somebody about this morning right, is a podcast called Freakonomics, and one of my favorite episodes in the last couple months has been about the behavior change revolution. And guess what they found? No matter what incentives they use, no matter what they do to try to get people to consistently change their behaviors over the long term, guess what? So far they've been Unsuccessful. They've been unable to do it, right? Because human beings struggle with that because we're sinful, because we're broken. And that's why we needed Jesus to stand in our place because you cannot earn God's favor. No matter how much you work, no matter how much you punish yourself, no matter how much you try to change your behavior, how much you try to modify, you are not able to make yourself holy. And that is why scripture teaches us that although you are unable to make yourself holy, if you are in Christ, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ on high and God has punished Christ for your sin and rebellion and has given you Christ's righteousness. And if you are in Christ, you are made perfect and holy, not by your own life, but by the life of Jesus and you are adopted as God's son or daughter, not based on your performance, but based on Christ's. That's the gospel. Not self-punishment, avoiding things like the leaders were teaching in the church at Ephesus. And Paul is pushing back on this and saying, guys, this is a gospel issue. This isn't just, oh, hey, some of the guys in the church are, are teaching that we shouldn't get married because we can't, uh, we can't hold back our lust. Or we, we, we can't eat certain foods because they were, they were sacrificed idols and we struggle with gluttony and so we, we should hold back from them. So we're gonna punish ourselves and never allow ourselves to eat those foods. Paul goes, guys, this is a gospel issue. But you need to understand that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving, and it is good. And what he means by that is God created things so that we could enjoy it and worship him, not the things. Right, this is, this is the problem, right? Let's say you struggle with lust and some sort of sexual perversion, right? And so your solution, right, runs to asceticism. I'm going to punish myself. I'm never going to give in to any sort of lustful desire. I'm going to be chaste. I'm never going to have sex again. I'm never going to do any of these things, right? And, and for a season, that might be good for you, right? Depending on what is specifically going on in your life, right? But overall, here's what I know to be true about sex. God created it. And if God created it, then it's created to be enjoyed. And it's created to be enjoyed, not to be worshiped. Right, The issue with sex, guys, is not sex itself. It's that you worship it. God designed it to be enjoyed inside the covenant of marriage as a gift for the couple to enjoy with one another and thank God for it. The same way that if you struggle with gluttony and you look at a piece of cake and you're like, that is evil, that cake is evil. No, it's just, it's, it's carbohydrates. And if, if you take it and you eat it, enjoy it. But gluttony is when you move from enjoying something to the glory of God to worshiping that thing. It's like some of you guys are like, man, I struggle with entertainment. I, I watched Netflix for 19 hours in the last two days. I need to get rid of my TV. Maybe, maybe. Or maybe you need to see that the creative endeavor of those that created that program on Netflix that you love is something to be enjoyed, an opportunity for you to rest, but it should point you to worshiping God, not that thing. That's how God has designed this. And this is what Satan does, guys. This is what Satan has been doing since Genesis chapter three. He takes the good things that God creates, amen from the horn over there, He takes the good things that God has created and he twists them so that we no longer take them with thanksgiving and worship of God. He twists it so that instead we want to worship that thing and not give God the credit for it. He twists it into a thing that is bad and should be avoided if we recognize that we struggle with it. right? See how he's taken something good like food which God created to sustain us and to enjoy. And he doesn't really care which sin you fall into, whether you fall into gluttony or asceticism. He doesn't care. He just wants you not to give credit to God for it and receive it with thanksgiving. Right? If there's two of us up here and Kevin struggles with asceticism and Kevin's wife struggles with gluttony, and I don't know if I'm gonna be in trouble for giving her that particular sin and not the other one, I don't know. She's not here right now though, so I'm not in trouble until she listens to it later. Satan does not care which one of us is struggling with which as long as we are not giving praise, honor, attention, glory, and worship to God. His goal is to pull the attention away from the creator and turn it in on the creation. And what Paul is saying here to Timothy is like, look, asceticism, all it leads to, Timothy, is Christians who live as if they're defeated and broken down people who can never overcome their sin. And that is not what the gospel teaches us. He says, our job, Timothy, your job as a leader inside of the church, for you here this morning, if you are a Christian, you are a leader in someone's life. Your job as a follower of Jesus is to live victoriously because the good news of Jesus is that were once enslaved to sin and death, but because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we celebrate because we now have victory over those things. You were once enslaved to your sin, unable to change the passions and desires of your heart, but because God saw fit to have Christ die in your place, you are made new and you are a new creation in Christ. And that is language that is good news, not bad news. And if we tie asceticism to the gospel, we take a great message of God's victory over sin and death and Satan, and we make it powerless. And Paul says, this matters. This is why Paul, even at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, sings that hymn. Right? He's standing there talking. He says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he breaks out in that hymn. Right? He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Right, Because as he sits back and he thinks about what the church causes him to do, and when he thinks about the call of Jesus Christ on his life, it doesn't lead him to asceticism and self-punishment. It leads him to worship and song. It leads him to break out in praise and to talk about the beauty of what God has done in his life because proper proper doctrine, proper understanding of the gospel leads to proper living and fidelity in Christ which is not sinless perfection but repentance that leads to holiness and enjoying and worshiping God for his goodness. I think about it from this from this way, right? A sin that probably pretty much any any one of us here this morning could probably say we struggle struggle with on some level at some point in time, gossip. And one of my favorite studies that we do as a church is the gospel center life. And that's the example they bring up because they know everyone struggles with gossip in some way or form. And I love it because sometimes, especially I'm usually doing that with guys, and guys are always quick to be like, ah, oh, that's a lady sin. <laughs> okay. Like two minutes in the lesson, they're like, I'm sorry, God, <laughs> right? Right, and you're lo- you look at that, right, and, and you look at gossip, and, and one of the things it tries to do is it says, okay, sometimes we're really good at recognizing that we struggle with gossip, and so what, is, what, do, what do you try to do when you recognize that sin in your life? And most people are like, I'm not going to talk about that person anymore. That, that's how I'm going to put it to death. I'm going to stop talking about that person. I'm going to commit to only speaking edifying language. That's what I'm going to commit to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit to cutting out the negativity from my life and only saying positive things. And, and in and of itself, those aren't bad things. But that's not what the gospel tells us to do. The gospel says, that we look at our sin and we see it as rebellion to the most high God and we actively repent of it. And here's what that means. Right? Most of the time, right, when we deal with a sin that we can visually see in our lives, we deal with the symptom and not the actual disease. This would know, so be like if you have cancer and the cancer is causing you to throw up and you go into the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, I'll give you some nausea medication. Well, thanks, but I would prefer you take the cancer out. And yet so many of us look at sin and we want to treat the symptoms instead of the sin. I'm going to stop gossiping. The deeper sin is there's something underlying that gossip that's leading you to do it. Right, for me, what causes Pastor Kevin to to gossip? I'm self-righteous. Right, I think that that, in some twisted way, right? I'm a pretty good person and that God loves me because I'm a pretty good person. And that even though I know the gospel tells me that God chose me based on Christ's favor, not because of anything I've done, I still delude myself into thinking, I'm a pretty good dad and I'm a pastor of a church and I know a lot about the Bible, so I'm a pretty good person. So God probably loves me a little bit more. And then, right, in that self-righteousness, somebody sees a character flaw in me and they start talking about it. And instead of responding and saying, yeah, I I do have that character flaw. Thank God that Christ died for me and that he's not done with me and he's changing me. He's molding me in his image and likeness. Instead, here's what I do. I gossip about that person. Do you know why? Because if I make you think I'm better than that person, then I can continue the lie that I'm pretty good. But the gossip's not the problem there. The gossip is not my primary sin. What, what is my primary sin? My self-righteousness. That I've deluded myself into thinking that I could earn God's favor on my own. And instead of Responding to my self-righteousness and doing what God asks of me, that I confess it as sin and rebellion, that I repent of it, that I bring it into the light, that I tell God that I'm sorry and that I want Him to change me. And I ask others to hold me accountable and be asking me questions like Kevin, what how are you, not just what are you doing, but how are you thinking? How are you thinking about yourself? How are you approaching life? And then I ask God to change me and live new and that when people talk to me and ask me about my life and they, they might even say to me, the very thing I wanna hear, Kevin, you're a pretty good person. I can take a step back and say, well, thank you, I appreciate it, that's very kind of me, but anything good you see in me is the work that Christ has done in me, not in my own work, but his. And I change the attention from me to my creator because really deep down, what is self-righteousness? I'm worshiping the creation rather than the creator who is to be praised forever and ever. Amen. And guys, the good news of the gospel is that I can look at my sin of gossip and self righteousness, and I don't have to create some 12 step plan to stop gossiping. I don't have to punish myself every time I talk about somebody behind their back. But instead, I can openly confess that sin, repent of it, and be reminded of my need for Christ's finished work on my behalf. And guess what, guys? Repentance for me often means I go and talk to somebody and say that I was talking about them and that I'm sorry for it and ask for their forgiveness. And it's awkward. But the Lord will do a work in you if you follow the process that he has outlined for us of repenting and confessing of sin and trusting in Christ instead of yourself. And asceticism causes us to trust in self instead of Christ. And that is why this mattered so much to Paul as he's teaching Timothy here in chapter four. He wants us to repent. He wants us to believe. And he wants us to worship. So here's what I here, here's my hope for us today. Right? I, I want us to leave here encouraged. I want us to, to leave this morning equipped. I want us to leave, leave empowered to live this out. To not be surprised by false teaching, but to but to depart from it. To to allow God's word to lead us to the freedom of living in Christ, not to trying to change ourselves through behavior modification. So I want to practically leave you with some things that I think will help us do those two things, right? So if you guys are like, yeah, I love the doctrine side, but not the practical side, write this down anyway because this is going to be important, right? And these will be things that you talk about in gospel community this week. Number one, how how, how can you actively, practically be living your life so as to not be surprised by false teaching or false teachers. I've used this example before, but I'm going to share it again. Right, when I was in the banking world right, and I would train uh, frontline employees with money, I did not bring fake money to them over and over again and have them look at it and, and, and look at that money so that they could be able to tell the difference between counterfeit bills and real bills. You know what I did? I gave them a drawer and had them work with real money over and over and over again. And the more they became familiar with what money felt like, with what money looked like, and and the different sort of like security features that would be on it, the more comfortable and familiar they became with the real thing. When a counterfeit bill came into our branches, guess what happened? They knew it immediately not because they had studied what counterfeit bills might look like, but because they knew the real thing so well that they could detect a fake immediately. Guys, false teachers work the same way. Instead of studying what false teachers do, the best thing you can do for yourself is to know the gospel and know God's word so well that the moment someone gets up here on a Sunday morning and starts saying something that that veers away from scripture, you're like, I don't like that. I can't even tell you exactly what he's doing right now, but I don't like it. There's alarm bells going off right now in my head of like, this guy's saying something that doesn't seem to line up with scripture and, and I don't like it. Right? The best thing you can do as a follower of Jesus is develop spiritual disciplines that are going to help you know what God says to be true or not. And here's a plug for the podcast we do here at the Be The Church podcast. We have been going over spiritual disciplines in that podcast for the last six months. Right? Go and listen to one of them and then commit to developing that discipline in your life because it's not just something God's asking you to do for the sake of doing it. God's asking you to develop that discipline so that you can better understand and see the truth and be ready to stand against false doctrine familiarity with God, his word, and truth, truth will lead you to know what to expect. Number two, the second way that I think you can uh, practically be ready to stand opposed to false doctrine or false teachers is to be in a community that's committed to biblical integrity and biblical faithfulness. Obviously, I believe Aletheia Church is one of those places. I wouldn't be up here preaching and leading the church and pastoring and shepherding if I didn't believe that we were one of those places. There are other churches, even in this city, guys, who do the same thing. I love them. They are partners in ministry in the gospel, and we are for them. But partner and join a church and be a vibrant member of God's family that is committed to biblical integrity and faithfulness to God. And in that, commit to... Consistent attendance, service, and participation in that community. Guys, just showing up is not participation. We love you. We're glad you're here. Caught it. We love you. We're glad you're here. But God has asked for you, his blood-bought son or daughter, to be a part of his church family to be active, to be growing. Because here's one of the things that's fascinating about being a member of the church, the the body of Christ. The more I get to serve alongside brothers and sisters faithfully, to love people, to serve the poor, to serve widows, to serve orphans, to, to help the downtrodden, right? to teach about God's love for us in Christ, the more I see that play out, the more encouraged I am and the more I see God at work in my own life as he works in others. That's how God designed his church to work. And so develop both the spiritual disciplines to know the real thing when you see it and be in a committed community of people that are like-minded and want the same thing. Number two, how to live out proper gospel faithfulness. How to live out a life that is devoted to to what God says is true instead of something like asceticism, right? Again, I think community can help you. i would be the first one. So it overlaps, (laughs) right? Community is designed both to help you see true doctrine, but also being amongst God's people in their pursuit of making much of Jesus will encourage you to the freedom and joy of walking with Christ when you see people around you putting sin to death and trusting in Jesus, it is highly motivating and encouraging. So being a part of a community that takes that seriously is gonna be an important step and role in your life for that. But the second thing, and this is what we're gonna do to close our time this morning, is live out practical examples of taking doctrine that we see to be true in God's word and apply it to our lives. So here's what we're going to do this morning. It's a little bit different than normal, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion together as a church. So if you haven't grabbed the elements already, they're up here on this table, you can run up here and grab communion. And I'm going to lead us through this time. And give you a minute to grab that if you need to. Brett, will you grab me one and bring me one too, buddy? Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Guys, here we'll, here's what I'll say about communion. Communion is a, an ordinance designed by God to lead us to worship him. This is, this is for professing followers of Jesus, right? So if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I would ask that you not take communion with us, not because we don't love you, not because we don't care about you, but because God says that this is a, a, an ordinance or something that we respond to or something that we do in response to what Christ has already done for us. And because you're not a disciple or follower of Jesus, this won't have the same effect or meaning for you. Now, I would also invite you, so to today, place your trust in Jesus, right? God tells us in his word that all of us are born sinners apart from God's love, but that in Christ, Christ gave his life willingly for us on the cross for forgiveness of sins. And that displayed through us through his crucifixion, his burial and his resurrection, that God had once and for all defeated sin and death and offers us new life and adoption into God's family. And here's one of the things that I think proper doctrine and understanding should do for us. When I was a kid, right, I would go to church and we would take communion the first Sunday of every month. And here's how that experience always was for us. At least it was for me, right? It was this super somber time, right? Everyone would kind of come up and we would get down on the kneelers. That's what we had at our church. And everyone was super quiet. And there was almost like this like really sad, somber funeral type music playing in the background. And it was almost like this, this really pious activity, Right, where we were supposed to be contrite and broken over our sin and we would come before God and confess it. And I think that, that that absolutely is probably one part of communion and observing the Lord's Supper together. But here's something that's missing from that. Right, One of the beauties of the gospel is that when Jesus was hanging from the cross, the last thing he says before he takes his final breath is, it is finished. And he is not referring in that moment to his life. He's referring to the wrath of God being fully satisfied in that moment on the cross. Meaning I don't need to take communion penitently. I don't need to take communion broken and with an asceticism type mindset because my sin passed present and future was fully paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. And so when I take communion, I shouldn't take it somberly. I should take it with respect and humility because of the the magnitude of what Christ gave up to secure my salvation. But I take communion as an act of worship and thankfulness and gratitude because of what Jesus Christ has done. Could you imagine right? If, if you are in hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, right? And someone you don't know comes in and says, I'm going to pay that for you. And they walk in and they write a check. And they pay it to the bank and you are out of debt in that moment. How are you going to feel? Grateful. If you're not, there's something wrong with you. Right? And yet, and yet could you imagine, right, Right, this mayor, this woman writes this check for you and gives it, and then you're thank you. I'm so 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 glad so glad you did that. Thanks. Right? And that and that person's like, dude, no, be excited. You're out of debt. It's over. It's paid for. And you're like, well, I think I'm gonna give a few more payments to the bank. No, they won't take them. It's paid for in full. And the same is true of your rebellion and sin, that if you are in Christ, you have nothing left to pay in return. And so here's what we're going to do, right? Communion is us observing the fact that we could not earn God's favor, but Christ earned it for us. And at the last supper, at the Passover, before Jesus's crucifixion, right? He asked us to observe this where we observe that his flesh and blood would be poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so will you do this with me? We're gonna take communion together, right? First thing I'd ask you to do is open this up and take out this styrofoam tasting wafer we have here thanks to COVID, right? And at the night of the supper, right, Jesus took the bread before his disciples, he broke it and he gave thanks to God. For that food. And then he passed it out to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Let's take and eat the wafer, remembering that Christ gave his own flesh for us. Afterwards, he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for that wine. And then he said, drink, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink this juice, remembering that Christ gave his own blood to purchase your salvation and forgiveness of sins. In taking communion this morning, church, here's what we have just done we observe the fact that our sin is paid for in Christ. That God has forgiven us because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Will you take a moment silently, I'm gonna invite the band to come on back up now at this time, to pray. And in that prayer, if you can think of any sin, go ahead and confess and repent of that sin openly towards God. But then thank him because that sin has been paid for and bought with by the blood of Christ. And then rise, knowing that you are forgiven. Let's pray.